0: This is an Our Savior Evangelical Free Church podcast. To learn more, visit osefc.org. Well, this time we are going to uh, receive the preaching of God's Word. And so if you have your Bible, let's open it. If you have your device, let's click through it to Romans 8, verse 12. We are in just a slow walk through Romans 8 that we are calling the best chapter in in the Bible. Actually, um, my wife was talking to, uh, a dear Christian friend earlier in the week and, uh, just with the events of the past week, she, Holly had been reading Romans 8 and, you know, was sharing this with a friend. said so I've been reading Romans 8 and her friend was like, isn't that just like the best chapter in the Bible? And Holly was like, ah, that's what we're calling the series. Um, and so I don't think it's hyperbole at all. I think it is really, it has to be among, if not the best chapter in all of the Bible. So let's read God's word, let's pray, and then let's get into these things. Romans 8, starting at verse 12. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you Will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Let's pray. Our great God, it has been a tough couple of weeks, and it has been a tough couple of months, a few months, we gather together now as a church family to support one another, to unite our voices in singing praise to you, to declaring your goodness and majesty and that you are a God of grace. In the midst of great uncertainty and upheaval, you have not abdicated the throne but you are sovereign and reign providential over all things. And so we ask, as sons and daughters of God, that we would be people who live not like we owe our flesh anything, but that we owe you everything. Shape us and mold us and form us, conform us into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ that we might proclaim your majesty and your goodness to the world. Amen. Well, I don't know if you have felt this way, but I had sort of gotten used to being in crisis. I just kind of became, it's become kind of the new normal. Early on, the virus was spreading. I was watching those numbers like many of you were was thinking about how I was going to keep my family safe and we were pl- planning to make our church, keep our church safe and watching other people and thinking about the people that I love and, and what would happen with them. And that was for a while pretty much all consuming. We had to completely change the way we do most of our lives at the church. We had to completely change the way we do everything as a church. I had to completely change the way I pastor and the, the way I serve our people. And it was, for a while, exhausting. Felt like I ran at a fever pitch with adrenaline on high for about a month. Then I kind of crashed out a little bit. And then I kind of came back and it was the new normal. And I know a lot of you can relate. You had to do the same thing. Your job changed. Your life changed. The way you do daily tasks and go about just regular chores and run errands and everything changed. And then this weird sort of thing about this way of living became a little bit more normal. Once we put some things in place, got a little routine going, our family adapted, you have adapted. I felt like we can kind of breathe a little bit and we, we kind of settled into it. It hasn't actually changed a whole lot. I mean, our, our state, our, our country, our, our whole world, really, we are still in crisis but this has begun to feel a little bit more normal. That had begun to feel a little bit more normal. That had happened. And then about two weeks ago, two weeks ago tomorrow on Memorial Day, the video came out a couple of days later. You know the other video I'm talking about? I need to be careful how I, I talk about this because I'm well aware that we have younger boys and girls listening to, including my own children. But we saw a few days later What happened to George Floyd? I'm saying what happened to him. That's not what I want to be saying, but exactly because of what I just recognized. We have people who are listening to me, and I don't want to make that decision about how you're going to talk about that for you as parents. But as I talk about these things, and I'm I'm going to a little bit, let me just say two things to that. I'm not going to make that decision for you, uh, but first... I'm not going to make that decision for you. But there are families that don't have that choice. It's not a decision because they need to say it plainly before their boys and girls can understand. Before their boys and girls are ready. Because they are terrified it will happen to them. And there are parents not just thinking about what will upset my children but what may have disastrous consequences for my children. And second, we need to talk about this because there are churches full of our brothers and sisters in Christ who are having much different kinds of worship services this morning. Romans 12:15 says rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. My heart wants so badly for our church to do what churches, I hope, all over Chicagoland are doing this morning. And that is to lament. And it is to grieve. There is much weeping, and so we should weep too. Now in Romans eight twelve, we get our first steps of response to all that's been put before us as we've been reading as a congregation in Romans 8, 1 to 11. Verses 1 to 11 of Romans 8 are this breathtaking depiction of what life for a Christian who has the Holy Spirit, there's really no other kind, a Christian with the Holy Spirit can look like. With the Holy Spirit there is freedom, there is intimacy with God, there is real, genuine life. Not the pursuit of stuff. Not the pursuit of worldliness that will distract us from death for a little while. Not chasing of pleasure, hoping for some momentary satisfaction. But Romans 8, 1-11 shows us what true life can be. Just listen to verses 10 and 11. If you who are indwelt by the Spirit, He is the same Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead and He will raise you too. That's what it says in, in 10-11. to Now that's joy. That's peace. That's hope. That the Spirit who is in you is the same Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead. And because He's in you, you too will be raised from the dead. That's hope. And now in verse 12, we're invited to demonstrate the Spirit-empowered life. The invitation is general. It's broad. It could cover... So many things. So the temptation when we come to a general principle, when we come to a general description in the scriptures is to leave it general. I'm worried that we do that too often as Christians. We take what is broad, whether good or bad, and we miss out on what God wants to do in us through it. Because we don't put the shovel into the soil of our heart to begin to turn it over. If you take the time, if you don't take the time to dig, if we never dig down, we're only going to see what's on top. And so you'll read verse 13 which says that there is a way to go about your day and to go from one week to the next doing things, staying busy, looking to everyone else around you like you're alive, but you are actually in the process of dying. And then there is a different way to be truly alive. There is a way to read that where it goes in one ear and out the next... And then there's a way to read these verses where they go in one ear, but they hit your brain and they turn south and move into your heart. That's what we want to do this morning. We want these things to go in our ears to hit our brains, our minds, and we want them to turn south and go into our hearts. And the way that we make sure that happens is that we don't leave things general we don't leave them abstract or theoretical or ethereal but we take the things that we're told as Christians and we try them out we put them on we sift them with and through and into real life situations we give it practicality you might think of this a little bit like training with live ammunition And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to look at the way the spirit empowered life can be demonstrated by Christians, and then we're going to do it with live ammo. So, verse 12. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. Now, through the first 11 verses of Romans 8, Paul has been saying, there is the flesh and there is the spirit. When you read flesh, read your natural selves. When you read spirit, read your supernatural selves, your spirit-empowered self. And in verse 12, when Paul says we are debtors, what he means is we are going to follow something. That's what he means by debtors. We're going to follow something. It's either going to be the flesh Or it's going to be the Spirit. The reason he comes back, he's done it several times already in Romans 8, to calling out the flesh one more time, is he wants us to see how deceptive the flesh is. The flesh will lie to you, and it will tell you that you can live according to it, it will present you with pleasure. And try to convince you that the things of the world can satisfy you. It will try to convince you, the flesh will, that if you go with the Spirit, you're going to miss out on some good life. You're going to miss out on some parties and some friendships. And you're going to miss out on some money. And you're going to miss out on some influence. And you're going to miss out on some people that you want to think are, you, who want, you want to think are cool are cool. But the flesh is a fraud. The flesh can no more give you life than sand in a desert can give you something to drink. The flesh is a liar. And what's more, we owe the flesh nothing. Paul says we are not debtors to it because he wants us, he wants to make sure that we understand that we have no obligation to the flesh. And the reason is obliging the flesh just a little bit is the surest way to become a compromised, hypocritical Christian. And when when I say that we don't owe the flesh anything, what I mean is that we can be lured into thinking that because we once sought, prior to Christ, fortune, We once wanted to have a little money. We once had the goal of being powerful. We can be lured into thinking we can follow Christ, still have quite a bit of money, but maybe not just quite as much as without Christ. We can still seek power for ourselves as long as we trust God for a little bit of power. We can still have influence and we can still do the things that we want to do. We can just do them a little bit with Jesus on the side. We can think it's not going to be enough if we're debtors to the flesh to leave everything and follow Jesus. We can think that I need to hold back a little bit for myself just in case this following Jesus thing doesn't quite work out. But Paul says, You don't owe the flesh anything. It has and should have no power over you. You owe your former life nothing. The expectations the world places on you are lies. In fact, Paul says, if you live that way, you will die. Jesus said, you can't serve two masters. Let me ask you this. Just let let me ask you this question. Have you ever indulged your flesh and it gave you what you were looking for? Has your flesh ever given you what you were really looking for? Not just for a little while, a few days, a week, a couple of months, but in the long run. Has your flesh ever given you what you want? No, it hasn't. That's why all the people who you know that are rich and powerful and famous and good-looking are not nearly as happy as they want you to believe that they are. Because they have everything our flesh tells us that should satisfy us. But they're not happy. You can't live in the flesh, even a little bit. And hope to live. That's what it says in verse 13. Look at verse 13. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Folks, the flesh won't give you life because it can't, but the Spirit can, and He will give you life if you come to Him. When you see him, when you come to him, the first thing he will do is to lead you to put to death the flesh. And he doesn't leave you on your own to do it. He doesn't ask you to do that prior to coming to him. You come to him and he leads you in doing it. He will help you. When you wonder, how can I possibly put to death the flesh? It's so powerful. I have a tough past. You say, I I don't come from a good family. I've sinned so much. I don't even know what it means to be a Christian. And I'm sure I can't be a very good one, certainly not as as good as all the other Christians that I see around me. When you say that, the Spirit will point you, not to new things, but to old things that are already there, that have already been done. When you wonder, well, how is it that I will put to death the deeds of the flesh? The Spirit doesn't say, I'm going to teach you new techniques. And he doesn't say, I'm going to give you something that you've never had before. He says, I'm going to give you and I'm going to show you what has already been yours. He's going to show you Romans 8.1. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. How do we put to death the deeds of the flesh? We recognize that it has no hold over us. It doesn't condemn us anymore. It's going to show us verse 4 that the righteous requirement of the law has been fulfilled for us by Jesus. You don't have to do these things, Jesus already did. To show you verse 10, because Jesus is alive and He lives in you, you too are alive, and even when you die, you will be raised from the dead. And then He gives us verse 14. God will call you his very own son or daughter. How will you put to death the life you're trying to live in the flesh? You will recognize that you are a son or a daughter of God. You are not condemned anymore. Jesus has paid the price for your sacrifice. And now what you have in front of you is life. And it doesn't matter what happened before that because there is again no condemnation for those who are in christ jesus that's what god does that's what god does but he also says that there is things for us to do look at verse 13 the second half of verse 13 but if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body you will live that sentence There, we are the subject of the verb put to death. You put to death the deeds of the body. So how how does that happen? We've already said it first happens according to the leading of the Holy Spirit. Without him, we have no hope for this. But because we have him, we have every hope of seeing it accomplished. But folks, it would be naive for us to think that there is absolutely nothing that we do. That we don't participate in this in some way. The word that that Christians have historically used to talk about how we put to death the deeds of the body or or put the flesh to death. It's an old word that's built on a Latin word, to mortify. In fact, if you memorize some older translations of the Bible, you would have read this verse and you would have read that you would mortify the deeds of the body. They used to put it right there in the scripture. Mortification is not the gentle pressure of hoping over time that you will become just a little bit less sinful. Mortification is not looking at our neighbors or our friends or our coworkers and saying, well, at least I'm not quite as bad as they are. Mortifying our sin as seeing it as the enemy and going to war against it. And refusing to accept any outcome where our sin lives at all in our body, but instead the only acceptable outcome is to see it ripped out of us with the ferocious force. If you think that sounds like hyperbole, if you think I'm just saying that because I'm up here trying to hold your attention on a beautiful day, look one more time at verse 13. Look what happens when you don't mortify sin in the flesh. If you try to live according to the flesh, you won't make it. You're not going to make it. There is only one option. Something has to die. Either your sin dies or you die. Those are the only two options, folks. This is how Jesus thought. He said, if your eye causes you to sin, cut it out. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. Now, obviously, he doesn't mean literally. But he also didn't mean if that, that, that if your eye causes you to sin, rationalize it. Compare yourself to other less holy people. And figure out what little bit of sin you can hold on to as long as it doesn't get out of hand or too out of control. He said, cut it out and cut it off. A few things about how we mortify sin. All in verse 13. First, we do it by the Spirit. How do we mortify sin? We do it by the Spirit, not legalism. The way of the Spirit is patience and joy and peace and love. We won't defeat sin by becoming angry and bitter, and we won't defeat it by trying harder. We mortify sin by asking God to give us a greater joy in him and to love the things that he loves. That's how we mortify sin. We are people with a great capacity to love if it's angled in the right direction. You won't defeat sin yourself by getting angry at it for very long. That'll work for a few days or it'll work for a week. You defeat sin by loving Christ more and finding all your joy in him and delighting in the things that he delights in. That's how you defeat sin. Not by legalism, but by grace and by love. Second, we mortify sin by going all the way. We put it to death. If you leave yourself with a little sin thinking you can have a little taste, you can wet your a little appetite, it will grow back. Think of how you weed. If you cut off the tops of the weeds, they will just come back in a few days or a week. Now, I eat best. I eat healthiest when I've worked out and when I'm sharp. I eat worst when I'm tired and I'm worried about other things. You can't think that you'll just leave a little sin there. How bad can it be? The only way... To get rid of sin is to fight against it and to go all the way until it's dead. To gear up for it, be awake for it, and work out toward it. Third, we mortify sin by having the right kind of goal. Verse 13 says that when we do this, we will live. That's your goal. Abundant life. You're never going to have enough money. You're never going to have enough drive. You're never going to have enough focus to mortify sin in the flesh. If all you're trying to do is be good, be seen as good. You have to have a greater goal than just by being seen as good. Where sin reigns, you die. Where sin is defeated, you live. There is eternal life at the end of that, absolutely, but there is life now. Our sin not only destroys our fellowship with God, sin ruins your life. Sin ruins your life. We become slaves to it. And if you think I'm wrong, just take what you love. Maybe people know you love it. Just just think of something in your mind. Think of something that you love. Maybe people know you love it. Maybe you love it in secret. But if it doesn't please God, just imagine for a moment your life without it. Can you do that? If you can't imagine your life without whatever it is that you're picturing, you don't control it. It controls you. You are a slave to it. You're not living free. You are enslaved to that thing. You can't serve two masters. Either whatever you're picturing... Is your God? Or the true God is? And we have to be willing to fight hard. Not just tough. But as though we are working to please God and not man. This is the fourth thing. How do we mortify sin? This doesn't work if you're going to try to please me. Or your spouse. Or you're trying to impress your friends. It only works to mortify sin... If you can do Apostle, the Apostle Paul says in Philippians 3. This is 3.12, starting at 12. Not that I have already obtained this, I am already perfect. But I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus had ma- has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. This isn't just about being a better person. And it's not something we finish. It's something, this is the last thing about mortifying flesh that we pursue boldly, tenaciously, courageously. And we pursue it for the rest of our lives. We don't settle for pretty good. We're good enough. We don't settle for better than most of the people I know. We put Jesus in our sights and say, I, I want you. I want you and I'm going to press in and I'm going to press toward you. Knowing that I'm never going to be there in this life. But when I meet you, what I want to say, Jesus, is I did everything in me that was possible to make you my prize and joy. Even when it was hard. Even when I wanted to turn away. Even when other people around me told me that I was loony. Even when things felt easier, you were my goal. You will only mortify sin in the flesh. If your ultimate pursuit is Christ, not a little bit of him, all of him. this way of pursuing Christ has been on my heart so much the past couple of weeks. So many times I've wanted to turn away and say there has to be something easier to do. While George Floyd was lying there, I wanted to turn away. While we watched riots and looting and buildings on fire, I I wanted to pretend that it wasn't real. part of learning to live by faith and pressing on to Jesus means that I need to start to care about the things that he cares about. And I need to be examined and I need to be willing to examine my own heart. I need to try to look at the world through his eyes. And I need to be grieved by and lament over the things that break his heart. I wondered all week how I could possibly do this for us in a way that made sense. Not just made sense of it all, but would teach us a better way, a Jesus way feel entirely insufficient to be able to talk about what's been happening in Minnesota and in our city and around the country. Not just because there's nobody who's entirely sufficient to talk about this. But I feel entirely sufficient to it because I haven't had the kind of experiences necessary to speak into everything that's been happening with the last few weeks. In many ways, I've I've, I've just had a distant view from the sidelines. I thought of so many people that I I wish could be here, friends of mine, heroes of mine, who are not only more qualified but have so much more to say and would say it so much better. I've read seen so many things this week from friends and brothers and sisters in Christ that I trust. And I want to learn from. And, and so as I, I considered, God, what would you have me say? How, how could I possibly say this? Something sort of hit me. They're not here. They're, they're, they're not, they don't have the, the face, mic. Uh, but I can tell you what they've said. I'm, I'm not planning to say anything that I think is really controversial. But I would ask this. I'll just ask this, just give me five minutes. If you find yourself wanting to propose a counter argument, or tell me I don't know the whole story, or just simply say these are things that you would rather not think about, I would ask this first. First, consider before you say anything Whether or not you are really willing to follow the Spirit in putting your sin to death. If you are, if you are willing to follow the Spirit in putting your sin to death, you have to admit that there are things you will not know. And furthermore, there are things you will have to be willing to rip out of you if they are not of the Spirit. Second, you have to admit that there are things that within you that you don't even know are there that are not of the Spirit. And so you've got to be open to hearing some things. And third, I'm just asking you to listen. I think we can agree that listening more will go a long way right now. There's much pain and hurting and suffering you're familiar with the story of Job, he was a man in the Bible who lost everything. And when he lost everything, his friends came and just sat with him for an entire week. The Bible is very clear to say they didn't say anything. They came and they just sat with him for a week. If you don't know what to do, I think the posture of Job's friends is a good place for us to start sit and listen like many of you i watched in horror first what happened to george floyd in minneapolis it's my hometown i love minneapolis my parents target was boarded up because of potential looting and then we watch people take to the streets and vandalize and steal and create chaos and hear me very clearly all of that is evil We've sort of gotten this weird education the past couple of weeks. From what I've read, from what I've seen, it wasn't primarily people of color, especially African Americans who accelerated this rioting. It was another group, primarily made up of radicalized young white men who took advantage of the situation and they used it for their own agenda of anarchy. In the middle of that, People trying to just turn our streets into anarchy. Police officers tried to restore order while constantly under the threat of a situation around them getting beyond their control where they might be hurt or in an act of self-defense. Having a video taken from the wrong angle that made it look like they were the aggressor and then they lose their job or maybe worse. It's hard to be a police officer right now. I have a good friend who's a cop. I checked in on him to make sure he's doing okay. And this one hit me right between the eyes. If I have this right, and I think I do, I went to high school with Thomas Lane. We graduated together. Thomas Lane was the officer who uh, was down by George Floyd's feet. And asked if they should turn him onto his side or they should sit him up. And was overruled by his commanding officer. I think I have it right. We went to high school together. I don't have a lot of memories, but I remember him being a good man. I have a one friend who's still connected with him. Says he's still a good man to this day. You don't have to decide whether brutal police or looting or anarchy are evil. And you don't have to decide between peaceful protesting, honorable cops, and the rule of law. All of those things can be true all at the same time. But can I tell you what I'm concerned that we will do? It's just my heart. Just listen just for a couple more minutes. I'm worried that we will speak up more about how awful looting and anarchy is, and we'll talk about how much we need law and order, but we won't denounce racism, and we won't express our outrage with equal voices that George Floyd didn't receive law and order on the streets of Minneapolis. There was nothing lawful and there was nothing orderly about what happened to him. And every time we talk about the horrors of looting, without lamenting police brutality, it makes many people around us feel unser- unseen and unheard, and it makes them angry. Again, I, these aren't my th- these are just things that that people I trust and friends are saying. Folks, our, many of, of our black friends and neighbors are tired. I've heard so many the past two weeks say that that there is looting and everybody's paying attention and there's a video and now people are concerned, but they know of so many times when there wasn't a video and they don't like looting any more than anybody else. In fact, they probably like it less because it's their grocery store that can't be open. It's their pharmacy where they can't get the medicines they need because it's been ransacked. And the rioting upsets their communities. But it hurts them deeply when we say, well, now, many of us say, well, now we're paying attention. But this is what it takes. And our greater concern is for law and order of one kind. While dismissing the lack of law and order of another kind as just an isolated incident. Because they know it's not an isolated incident. And again, I, I'm, I'm even hesitant to say these things because I, I don't want to presume to speak for people. And I understand that not everybody in every community feels this way. Not everybody who looks like you feels the way I, you do. And not everybody who looks a little bit different from you feels the same way either. I'm concerned that many of us will see it as just this, an isolated incident. And maybe we'll even be appropriately outraged. But, but my fear is that we'll do what we do with isolated incidents. We will be outraged, we'll be upset, and then we'll move on because something else will happen and take our attention. For many of our friends, or our neighbors of color, this is not an isolated incident. It's an, an, another in an ongoing series, a never-ending series of incidents. The difference is, is what we do now. If we think it's one time, if we just think, well, it's one time and it was a bad thing, but it's only one thing, we're not going to do much. This is the reality. We're not going to do much. We'll agree that it's wrong. I don't know a single person. I don't know one single person. I haven't read one single social media post where somebody didn't say that that was wrong or thought it was okay. But we need to do more. We need to ask why this keeps happening. And we need to recognize that it's not just a few stories, it's not just a few incidents. There's a system that has grown up, slowly developed over hundreds of years that makes it very difficult for some people to get justice and makes it all too easy for other people to escape justice. It's economical, it's political, it's geographical, it's social. And it's racial. We are the church and we have a Bible where Ephesians 2.15 says that Jesus came to create one new humanity. Where are we supposed to be people in this who do justice and love mercy as a part of walking humbly with God? Where are people that value human life, the intrinsic value of every human life of all people because they are created in God's image? And it is God who puts breath in people and so other people shouldn't make people stop breathing. Only God should do that. Are we appropriately outraged that it doesn't always happen that way? And I get it. There are many other incidents that look very different than this one. And we could talk about all those. And maybe we should. But right now, we have a lot of friends and a lot of brothers and sisters who in, Christ, in Christ who are expressing a lot of pain. And they're asking us to look at this one right now. That doesn't mean that all of the other ones don't matter. It doesn't mean that there aren't serious problems in other areas. But what they're saying is, please listen to us about this one. we're complex people. We can hold a lot of things in tension. We can recognize that there are a lot of problems, and just because we focus on one for a little while doesn't mean it's the only problem. It just means this is the one we need to look at right now. And if we as a church, if Christians don't have anything to say about this, then folks, there is a little hope for us. Jesus said, blessed are the those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. He didn't just mean personal righteousness. He meant hungering and thirsting for righteousness of all kinds. We have to want what's right. If we want Jesus, we have to want what he wants and we have to want what's right. People want to know what they can do. The problem feels too big. I've heard some people say that That protesting doesn't get anywhere because it doesn't demanding specific action. They want steps. They want to know what the next few years should look like. And if people can't articulate that, then we're not ready to talk about it. Folks, that can't be the case. We can't. Nobody, this is too big a problem for us to solve with a seven-point plan. In many ways, Christians should be well prepared to face the possibility of doing good works into the future without a specific plan because that's what we are called to do. We don't know what all the future will hold for us, but God says, walk in the good works that I've prepared in advance for you anyway, knowing that some things are uncertain. Christians are called to walk by faith at the end of Hebrews 11 it says that some people who walk by faith see the fruit of their faithfulness and some people get devoured just because we can't see the end and just because we don't know what all the plan is doesn't mean we don't take a step forward this is a time to take a step forward people say it's too big what can I possibly do? But living by faith, let's just take a step. Christians before us have already taken so many. We have to take so many more. So here's just two things. Two quick things, and I'm going to wrap up. Number one, lament. Job's friends sat with him for a week, and they said nothing. Read the story of Job. Problems started and his friends started sounding stupid when they began to talk. They were good friends when they sat with him. Just sit. Just sit and listen. It's a good place to start. And then repent. If you're not willing to take a deep, long look into your own heart, then you're not ready to pursue the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. If we're going to define racism as just waking up in the morning and not liking people because of their skin color or ethnicity, we need a better definition of racism. I know, in fact, very few people who think that's the kind of racist that we're talking about. We need a definition of racism where it says it's harder because of some people's race in our land than others, and that's not right. And we need to pursue a better way there's anything in your heart repent it is possible folks Daniel did it and plenty of people in the Bible did it to repent for a nation repent for our nation confess sin and say we're sorry so let's just do this let's just sit here for a minute it's hot I know you're anxious I went longer thanks for the time felt like I needed to say these things felt like we needed to hear these things not my things just things that I think other people would tell us. But let's just sit here for a minute, and then I'm going to close us in prayer. God, we want to be a church that hungers and thirsts for righteousness. We want to be a church that does justice. And loves mercy. And walks humbly before you. Where we have not been. And where we are not now. We are sorry. When we should have said more. And we said little. We are sorry. When we were too quick to speak. And not. Slow enough to listen. We are sorry. Make us a people that loves the things that you love. Longs for the things that you long to see. And laments over the things that are broken in this world. And we say come quickly Lord Jesus. May we live by the spirit no longer owing anything to the flesh. Amen. Our Savior Evangelical Free Church is a congregation located in Wheeling, Illinois. Our vision can be summed up in four words, building community, bringing Christ. To learn more about what these words mean, visit our website at osefc.org.